Great job, Amanda. Thank you for sharing that with us. Jake's going to help me out by setting a few things up, but as he does, I just want to mention we have uh, several individuals who are celebrating birthdays and anniversaries, and it just seems like the time to celebrate an anniversary. I think that today is Raymond and Marianne Falp's anniversary. It's also Jack and Sharon's anniversary. I think Don and Carol have an anniversary tomorrow. Uh, seems like that's just what everybody's supposed to do this time of year is get married. So when is yours? Yesterday for Jackie and Blanche Ray. What a blessing to be able to celebrate so many anniversaries. And uh, it is, I see someone holding up a check for me. Just hold on to it. We're going to do that at the end of the service. Uh, <laughs> I do appreciate that. I, I did throw you a curveball this morning because I changed the order of the service a little bit. And uh, actually, part of it, I just want to keep you on your toes. That's all. I'm just trying to make sure you guys are paying attention to me. So thank you, Jake. I appreciate you doing that. Being in ministry, we work with all different kinds of people, and one of the cool things is to be able to see the many gifts and abilities that different people have, although I'm not sure that all abilities are really gifts. I think sometimes the abilities we have are definitely not gifts. For example, I've worked with multiple individuals who have the amazing ability to be able to control their spit. Now, I I use this, I'm going to explain ahead of time. The passage that was read earlier comes from Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 to 20. Actually, we're going to look in just a little bit, verses 14 to 22. But in it, it talks about something that is so disgusting. I think the version that Elaine read earlier was from the New King James Version. It used the term, God is going to vomit you out of his mouth. Uh, From the NIV, it says, I'm going to spit you out. And from the King James, it says, I'm going to spew you out of my mouth. So as I share what I'm about to share, understand that there is a connection to the message this morning. Uh, Two different individuals had the amazing ability to be able to control their spit. And what I mean by that is they are somehow able to let their spit slowly fall from their mouths and then suck it back up into their mouth right before it hits the floor. I've never been able to do it, to be honest with you, not that I would ever want to, but it is amazing. I'm just not sure it is really considered a gift. On one particular occasion, one of our staff pastors in Colorado, his name is Rusty, had his wife and he was terrorizing his wife and he had her pinned underneath him and he would allow his spit to fall until it almost would touch her face and then he would suck it back up. And of course, she would scream and according to the way she told the story, on one occasion, she had her mouth wide open and she is screaming and it slipped and he was not able to pull it back up. She said that he never did it to her again because she made sure it was something disgusting. I want you to understand that there is something very disgusting about many Christians in the way we live our lives. And God looks at us and he says, if you are not going to be hot or you are not going to be cold, you are lukewarm and that disgusts me. God is not pleased with the lukewarm individual who is not really sold out for Jesus Christ. Over the next three Sundays, I'm going to take a look at this chapter, the one that we're going to read in just a moment, using these three chairs to represent various stages of our Christian faith. If you would look at the passage with me 
In Revelation chapter 3, verse 14 to 22, this is John who is writing this, but he's writing specifically the words that Jesus gave him to write. Revelation 3, beginning in verse 14, says this, To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire, so you can become rich, and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness, and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Within this passage, we see three individuals represented. Using the terminology of this passage, we see that some are hot. These are the ones that they are passionate about their love for Jesus Christ. They are on fire. You would look at this individual and you would say, I know this individual is committed to Jesus Christ. It's not just something that they do haphazardly. This is the most important thing for them. This is the relationship that matters most to that individual. They are committed. They are close friends with Jesus Christ. I would love to tell you that everybody who goes to church on Sunday morning is a close friend with Jesus Christ, but i got to tell you that there are actually very few that would be able to sit in this hot seat. We think of a hot seat as something as a negative. You don't want to be in the hot seat because everybody's paying attention to you. Everybody's focused in on you, and you feel like there's this big magnifying glass, and everybody wants to know what you're doing and why you're doing it that way. But I'm telling you, that is the seat that every one of us wants to be in. That is the seat of commitment to Christ, having a close friendship with God. And here's something that really sets the two apart, the three apart. Those who sit in this hot seat are the ones who would put God first above everything else. And then they would have self second. Self is still there. You still want to make sure you take care of yourself, but that is secondary to putting God before everything else. Then you have the chair in the middle that is the lukewarm chair. This is the individual who is willing to compromise on anything. We'll never say that we'd be willing to compromise, but if the need is enough, we'll compromise because it really doesn't matter. It's not that big a deal. It's not in my notes. It's okay. Um, David sinned with Bathsheba. Everybody in here is familiar with the sin that took place. 
often we recognize that the big problem was what happened when he saw this woman who was naked and he decided to take her into his home himself. And he had a sexual relationship with her. But the problem didn't begin when he decided to have a sexual relationship with Bathsheba. The problem began, actually, if you look at the passage, it tells us at the time when kings go off to war, David stayed home. Now, is that a sin? No. But it was a compromise. And compromise will typically cause problems in the long run. Those who are in this lukewarm chair, they'll, they'll not decide, well, you know what, I think it's okay if I sin, but they will choose to compromise. And eventually, you need to know that even compromise can lead to sin. Those in the lukewarm chair, they know Christ, but it's more as an acquaintance. They're not necessarily close friends with them. If you were to ask them, do you know who Jesus is? Oh, yeah, he's my Savior. And they can refer back to a moment when they prayed a specific prayer, maybe when they were kids, maybe when they were adults, they made a choice to follow the Lord, but when it comes down to it, he's nothing more than an acquaintance. What's the difference? A close friend is someone that you talk to, you interact with, you share with, and you listen to them, and you work together, and you grow together. An acquaintance is just somebody you know. It's somebody you pass in the grocery store. It's somebody who goes to your school. It's someone who you work with, but you really don't get to talk to them and interact with them. Those in the lukewarm chair, they know Christ, but only as an acquaintance. And for those in that chair, self comes first. Taking care of themselves, and then God is second. God's still on the radar, but he's not really first. Then, of course, you have the third chair, and this is probably the easiest one to understand. This is the cold chair. And for this individual, they find themselves in conflict with Christ. Why? Because God hates sin, yet they've chosen to live a life of sin. And the wages of sin is death, eternal separation from God. The whole reason that Jesus had to die was because of that sin. And if we choose to walk in that sin, we are in conflict with God. So the one who's in this cold chair is the one who is still in conflict with them. They may be aware of Christ, barely aware, or maybe they've never even heard of him at all. But the point is, they certainly would not consider themselves to be in a relationship with Christ. Then, of course, for this individual, it's the one who they're not concerned about God really at all. It's all about self. Interesting, as I look at these three chairs, this is the one that God is most disgusted with. Interesting that God is more pleased with this cold chair than what he is with the lukewarm chair. You would assume that if anything, God wants us to be on a progression, moving from one side to the next. But that is simply not true. God says, because you are neither hot nor cold, but because you are lukewarm, you disgust me. Doesn't mean he doesn't love you, by the way. But God realizes that the lukewarm life can never bring honor to God the way it's supposed to. He would rather us be cold 
and not proclaim the name of Jesus Christ than to give a bad name to who Jesus Christ is and what he can do. He would rather us not be in any relationship than to pretend to be in this seat over here and really only be over here. Why is it that so often Jesus talks about the individual who becomes a stumbling block to one of these little ones? He says it'd be better that they had a millstone tied around their neck and thrown into the bottom of the sea if they should cause one of these little ones to stumble. I believe very firmly that there are many who are sitting in a lukewarm chair right now and they are causing others to stumble because they pretend to be in this chair over here. Do you understand my point? God looks and he says, it disgusts me to see the lukewarm life. I want to focus today specifically on what it means to be not in the lukewarm chair, but in the hot chair. The cost of discipleship. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 38. I'm going to ask if you would to turn in your Bibles to this passage for me. Mark chapter 8, verse 34 to 38. Jesus is talking to his disciples and as he is, he's kind of separating the men from the boys. This is from the New King James Version. It says this, And when he called the people to him with his disciples also, he said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." Jesus is separating the men from the boys here. The crowds had been following him because of the miracles. They're impressed with him. They love the way he teaches. He teaches with power and authority, unlike even that of the Pharisees and the other religious leaders. There would be those in the crowd, just like in church circles today, people who like religion, who love the works of God being manifested in some way but they're unwilling to pay the true cost of discipleship. But here Christ calls his followers to be fully committed to the work of God. What's so interesting is the contrast between Jesus' initial invitation to his disciples, where he invited them to something that seems so simple. Come, and I will make you fishers of men. That's a very attractive thing for these individuals. Consider many of those disciples were fishermen to begin with. This is what they knew. It was what they loved. You're going to come and you're going to allow me to take what I learned as a boy learning to fish. You're going to apply that in a spiritual sense. I can make a difference in the world just doing the same things that I've already done. What an attractive call Jesus offers. But here he presents it in a very different way. If you're going to come after me, you must take up your cross and follow me. 
every individual in his audience would have known the significance of the cross. We often think that Jesus was the first one to be crucified. It's simply not true. Crucifixion was a very common form of punishment. The difference was most of those who received their punishment received a just punishment, as one of the criminals noted as they hung on the cross with Jesus. Jesus invites the people to take up that cross. It is a cross of sacrifice. It is a cross of punishment. You take the weight of the cross upon you. You take the suffering. If you want to follow me, you've got to be willing to truly be committed even if the road gets dark and difficult. To the individual who is in this seat, this hot seat, commitment is not a conditional thing. There is a clear intention on the part of the individual to follow Christ regardless of what the cost may be. Then you also have the joy of discipleship that comes with this. It should be noted that a part of what motivates individuals to be fully committed often is the fact that there is a certain amount of joy that comes with the commitment of following Jesus Christ. In the case of these original disciples, they were very much committed to service. But a portion of their commitment was based on the experience that they had of simply being with Jesus. And later on, it would be being filled with the Holy Spirit. The presence of God made it a joyous occasion, even when you had difficult things that happened. So obvious when you begin to look at the different disciples and what they went through to see that there was still a sense of joy even though there was also sacrifice and suffering. Think of James who said, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds. Or think of Paul who said, We glory in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. And then there's a list of other things that it produces. Or consider Peter, who in 1 Peter 1.6 talked of rejoicing amidst the trials. These were all individuals who would display great commitment to Christ, but not begrudgingly, but with the joy of knowing that they were pleasing God. Maybe a good way to see this would be to imagine a dad sitting at the table with his two children. There's one piece of cake left, and the dad really wants it. But he also knows that both of his children want it. So the dad takes the cake, and he swallows it whole. Oh, actually, wait, that's the other story, sorry. The dad takes the cake, and he cuts it in half, giving one piece to each child. The father sacrifices. He doesn't get the thing that he really wanted. But as he sees the excitement on the faces of his children, sacrifice no longer seems like much of a sacrifice because there is great joy. The final part of this hot seat is the realization that such a committed, loving relationship with God will always produce fruit. That fruit may not always be what we're expecting, but it will clearly make a difference in the lives of other people. I'm telling you that we live in a world that is desperately seeking someone who can rise above the crowd. 
I know we live in a world that almost on occasion we assume that what they really want, I'm just moving this so I can see you guys over here a little better. We live in a world where sometimes we think people want to see us fall from this seat. Maybe it's because if we fall, they feel better about themselves. You know, if they catch me doing something I'm not supposed to do, you think about what you've seen recently on television. I don't know the right position with the, what is it, the Duggar family. I tell you the truth, I've never even seen the show. Apparently I won't see the show either because they've canceled it. I don't know what the right position is with any of that. But I'll tell you, we live in a world where it seems like people are so excited to see someone fall, to not be in this chair where they claim to be. They're only over here. So we get so excited about it because of their failure because maybe I don't feel so bad about myself anymore. But I'll also suggest to you that we live in a world that even though often they rejoice over those who should have been in this seat and we discover that they're really over here, we live in a world where many people are looking to find out if it's really possible to be in that seat. Is it possible to live a life that is truly changed, to be made new? Can I really overcome the sin that has dominated my life for so long? We live in a world that wants to know the answer to that question. And when we choose to live in this seat, when we choose to honor God with full commitment, our world will take notice. They will recognize the Spirit of God living among His people. It does make a difference when there is no compromise. It does make a difference when there is a loving relationship with Jesus Christ. And it does make a difference when it's more than something that we do out of convenience, but it is truly a commitment that we have made and we will choose to honor that commitment. Our world longs to know that it's possible to live to a higher standard. You know, when the life you live makes a difference in other people's lives, sacrifice no longer seems like sacrifice, does it? I'm going to turn the table a little bit here, and I want to apply this directly to this church. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, warn you, I am likely to step on a few toes in this next section of what I share. But rejoice over your suffering as the disciples said we should. Using this same model and applying it to the church as a whole, if we are to be a church that is positioned in seat number one, then there are some things that will need to happen. First, Church can't just be one of many options for Sunday morning. It needs to be a priority. Certainly, culture has changed over the years. There was a time that Sunday was considered sacred. Most, if not all, stores closed on Sundays. And Sunday service seemed to be the highlight of the week. In fact, even sports were considerate of church. I played football in high school. 
And it was interesting that even though it was a very public high school, every Wednesday the coach would quit practice about a half hour early so that everyone would still have time to get to their church services on Wednesday night. You never had to worry about there being a sports event on a Sunday because Sunday was about worshiping the Lord. And that was the priority. I did warn you that I'm going to step on some toes here, but I think it's time for church to become the priority again. I ask you, is faithfully being at church a priority for you? Or is it just something we do when there is no better option for today? Another aspect of a church being in seat number one is found in our willingness to serve. For the most part, I'll commend you on this one as a church. Certainly there are times that we have had to seek out additional volunteers in various areas like children's ministry or nursery, but I've also had individuals who have randomly come to me and said, Pastor, what can I do to help? What a wonderful question to ask the pastor. It's exactly what every pastor wants to hear. I'll tell you that it's in these service opportunities that you will experience much of the joy and the fruit of ministry that we talked about earlier. Maybe you're opening up your home to a vine ministry group, or you're visiting a shut-in, or you're following up with a guest from Sunday morning service. In those serving opportunities, you will build incredible relationships and get to take part in helping others grow in their relationship with Christ. And while it sounds great, it's even better when you're doing it. I'll tell you that one of the most significant areas that will need our attention in the coming year is with regard to children's ministry. I shared with you in a recent sermon that I believe God will use this church to help build up families. And one key element, one key component of many families is our children. Again, two weeks ago, our district superintendent, actually I guess by now it would have been three weeks ago, Our district superintendent stood before us and noted that one of the first things that people want to know when they attend your church is, what do you have for my family? Well, we need to do everything we can to communicate our love for these children. We need to do everything we can to reach children with the message of Jesus Christ, knowing that such a relationship discovered at a young age will transform everything in their lives as adults. To put it more plainly, the time is coming when we will need to make some drastic changes to our children's ministry. For example, I'll start with something very simple. I visited another church while I was on vacation a few weeks ago. I'll tell you to begin with, I don't want to be that church. Part of it's because they run 50,000 people on Sunday morning. I felt very uncomfortable for parts of that. I don't understand how individuals can know the pastor with 50,000 people. I love the idea of reaching 50,000 people, but it just seemed a little bit uncomfortable to me. But there were some things that I looked at and I thought, that's what should happen. An example is this. We walked in the doors of the church, and the first thing that you saw was children's ministry everywhere. Michael was so excited to have to go to children's church instead of staying with mom and dad. By the way, I love, I'm one of the rare pastors. It doesn't bother me at least if you have children in church. Some of you are sitting there thinking, pastor, don't tell them that. I'm telling you, I don't even notice when a baby cries when I'm preaching. 
I don't see anybody move. I've had people apologize to me. Pastor, you know I'm on medication. That's why I fell asleep during the sermon today. Well, I didn't even know you fell asleep during the sermon because I see nothing when I'm preaching. I love having children in our service, but you know what I loved? My son wanted so much to be in children's church when we walked in those doors because he saw a ministry that they were so excited about kids. I saw something I was excited about. They actually had secure stations where people would check in their kids. I want to know when I visit a church that there's a place for my kids to be safe. And you know what I did after the service was over? I went and got Michael and I said, Michael, what'd you learn at church? And he began to tell me all the Bible stories. You know what? A kid can have fun and still learn the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what needs to happen as a part of our church. We need to look at doing some things a little different. But I walk in that foyer, there's not a single item that tells me that I love children's ministry. There's not a single thing that would tell a visiting family, this church cares about my kids. And it needs to change. In addition to that, I think that in a more drastic area, by the way, I've already spoken with both Dale and Greg about this, who currently lead our children's ministry. I believe that within the next year, we will need to look to hire someone in a full-time capacity to direct this ministry. It's what we've already done with the youth ministry, and for very much the same reasons. Dale and Greg would love to be able to pour more time into the kids, but the fact is they both have other jobs and they cannot do it. They do not have the time available to them. I'll tell you, it's worked out very well for the youth ministry. I get excited when I look up here every Sunday and see a group of teenagers, and I see them actually in other places as well, but every Sunday I look for the youth group. I think it makes an incredible difference for a church to have young people who are growing and excited about the Lord. And I think that just as we have teenagers who are able to experience that, we're going to need to do the same thing to perhaps help our children's ministry to be more of a priority. The point is that by next spring, I anticipate our church bringing on a full-time children's minister. It's not so we can pay somebody else to do what we've already been doing. Instead, it's so that we can simply be more effective at what we're already doing. That means that we still need volunteers, maybe even more volunteers as that ministry grows. And likewise, we'll need more financial support, which ties into the final part regarding this seat number one. We have to be faithful in our giving. Part of it is because God told us to do it. And I'll, I'll just be very simple with you. If you are not tithing, then you are not living, you are not living the life God intended for you. Instead, you're living a disobedient life to God. I told you I would step on toes this morning. If you are not tithing, you are living disobedient to your God. But another part of tithing is not always just obedience. It is connected to supporting the ministry of the church. I just talked about how much we want to expand our children's ministry. I want to challenge you to give faithfully because your generosity will make a difference in the lives of our children. On multiple occasions, 
I've seen churches that have expanded ministry potential by hiring additional staff. And the primary reason was, at least given by many of the people, is you have to trust God that he'll provide. And at times, that's exactly what he's done. But I've also seen churches who then fail to realize that often God provides through the people who are already in the church. Do you believe that God will provide for a children's ministry that is reaching into the community and actually introducing these kids to Jesus Christ? I believe he will provide, but it will probably be through many of you. I'm telling you that if you believe we need to be more effective with our children's ministry, if you believe that such changes would positively affect our kids, then consider the fact that God may be providing through people like you and me. Be generous and invest in these kids. And finally, your generosity will also affect you. I'm not going to tell you that if you give $1,000, the Lord will give you $10,000. But I will say that you truly cannot outgive God. As in the parable of the talents, show yourself to be faithful with what God has given you, and you can be sure that God will trust you again and again. I ask you again, are you fully committed to Jesus Christ today? If so, it will be evident in your faithfulness, in your service, in your generosity. If the church is fully committed to Christ, then it will be evident as we continually put Christ first and allow ourselves to be secondary. We'll be more concerned about how we can reach that kid for Christ and trying to make sure that our pews are comfortable for us, or that we're singing our music, or whatever else it is that we want. Are you fully committed to Jesus Christ? Is that your number one desire? My hope and prayer is that every person who is in here today would see this as their seat. But I realize today that there are Unfortunately, probably, and that's not me judging, it's just a statement of what is typical. There are probably more people in this seat today than what we have in this seat. I will tell you, I had a a lady, wonderful lady, who was a part of our church in Colorado. Uh, Back then I was an assistant pastor, so rarely did I get to preach. So when I did, I'd have to do the whole sermon uh, instead of the whole series. I had to squeeze it all into one. And I had a lady come to me after a sermon that was based on something similar to this, and she said, you know, Pastor, the one problem I have is I find myself with one seat on one chair and the other half on the other chair. I would venture to say that there are probably some in that category too. I don't know where you are spiritually today, but I do know that God desires that we be fully committed to him and that anything less than that would dishonor him. If you would bow your heads with me. Father, as we come before you today, you know that in this message I've pinpointed a few areas where we see that passion come out, that commitment. Lord, there are so many other areas, so many ways that our faithfulness to you shows up. Or more importantly, so many other ways
that our unfaithfulness shows up. Lord, I pray today that you would show your grace to us. Many of the folks who are in this congregation today likely have been in the various other seats. Some have allowed compromise to work into their lives, and they're not where they need to be. And right now, Lord, we ask that you would restore unto us the joy of your salvation, that you would renew a steadfast spirit in us, Lord, allow us to be so fully committed to you that nothing else could ever work in. Instead, we would be so devoted to you that everything else is secondary. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to do more than just talk about our faith, do more than just take on the name of Christian, but rather help us to live as those who have been redeemed by you. For the last thing we want is to discuss you, Lord. Lord, help us to be fully devoted children of God. With every head bowed and eye closed this morning, perhaps there is someone here today who you feel convicted because you know that you have spent far too much time with one cheek on one chair and one cheek on another. Or perhaps you look at your life and you see yourself not as being in that hot seat, but rather fully comfortable in that lukewarm seat. And perhaps today is the day that you need to surrender your life to Jesus Christ to be fully committed. If you would like to do that, I just ask, would you raise your hand? I want to be able to pray specifically for you this morning. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Father, I come before you for the three individuals that just raised their hands. And I ask that you would sanctify them. Lord, I pray that you would set them apart for your holy purposes. Lord, I pray today that no longer would compromise be a part of their vocabulary except to talk about the past. Lord, I pray that from this moment forward they would walk as those who are fully committed to you passionately in love with you, truly experiencing the joy that you have made possible in them. Well, we ask for your forgiveness, but we also ask for the infilling of your Holy Spirit. Lord, I pray that you would anoint them, that you would bless them, and that from this moment forward, they would walk as your ambassadors, do a mighty work in and through them, and Lord, we will give you the praise for what you do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. As we close out the service this morning, we have not taken up the offering. So we're going to do that. But as we do, we're also going to sing a hymn together. It's entitled, Jesus Paid It All. Understand today that Jesus has paid for our every sin. And today we rejoice over what he has done. He has given us the promise of eternal life, and today we have a reason to live. Let's pray for the offering. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have to give to you today. These gifts that are about to be given, may they honor you. Help us to give not out of obligation, although you have called us in obedience to tithe, but help us to give with joy, knowing that as we give, it will make a difference in the lives of others. Lord, may you be honored as we give today. In Christ's name we pray. 
Amen. The ushers will come at this time as we sing together, Jesus paid it all. If you would stand as we sing. Our Savior saved, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Oh, now indeed I find Thy power and Thine alone Can change the leper's spot and melt the heart of stone cause Jesus paid it all all to him I owe sin had left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow When before the throne I stand in him complete Jesus died my soul to save My lips shall still repeat Jesus paid it all all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Praise the one who paid my debt and raised this life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life up from the dead. Oh, praise the one who paid my debt and raised his life up from the dead. Jesus paid it all, all to him I left a crimson stain he washed it white as snow Jesus paid it all
Jesus Christ, Lord, all to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain, He washed it white as As Jesus Christ has made us whole, we ought to go with the blessing of the Lord and know that he is the one who dictates our lives. Rejoice with me as we serve him. Lord, may your blessing be upon each one who is here today. May you be honored as we live for you as those who are fully committed to your work. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Thank you for being with us and we're dismissed. <laughs>